Welcome to Celebrate Poe, Episode 1, Becoming Poe. The music for the intro you are hearing, Come Rest in This Bosom, is said to be from Edgar Allan Poe's favorite song, according to one of his sweethearts, Marie Devereaux. My name is George Bartley, and in this episode, I would like to talk a bit about my background and how I became interested in Poe. I want to let you know where I'm coming from as we take this journey together into the times, life, and works of America's Shakespeare, Edgar Allan Poe. In the next episode, I will describe my first encounter with the ghost of Poe and how he became my co-host. So stick with me, and in the next episode, Mr. Poe will make his podcast debut. Ten years ago, my partner, now my husband, and I moved to Richmond, Virginia. I began looking for a job, but didn't have any luck. Then I saw an opening at the local Apple store. Now, I know this really ages me, but I bought a Macintosh 128K back when the Mac first came out, and I've been an Apple fan ever since. Anyway, it seemed to me that working at the Apple store would be a dream job. I was called in for an interview and really felt that it went rather well. But several weeks went by without me hearing from them. Never a good sign. And finally, I got a letter from the Apple store saying I did not fit in with their goals. To me, this was not just a minor disappointment, but a devastating rejection. Later in the year, I thought about what it might be like to work at the Apple store with its constant crowds of wall-to-wall people, mobs of upset Apple fans at Christmas. I could almost hear the constant roar and pressing crowds. Then I realized it might not be the job of my dreams. But I digress. My husband then told me about an ad he had seen for a job at the Poe Museum in Richmond. To be honest, much of what I knew about Poe was just the usual stuff in high school you learned to get by, not that much. And like many uptight people from the South, I felt on some level that Poe was just not quite decent, but that soon changed. Now, I had just gotten a graduate degree in Shakespeare and Renaissance literature from Mary Baldwin University in cooperation with the American Shakespeare Center. I know that's a mouthful, but that's the way we're supposed to say it. Anyway, the American Shakespeare Center is located in Stanton, Virginia, a beautiful little town in the Shenandoah Mountains, about 90 miles from Richmond. And since Poe is often referred to as America's Shakespeare, I thought maybe I could emphasize my Shakespeare background and somehow make it work for me. It certainly couldn't be that big a jump from being a Shakespeare nerd to becoming a Poe nerd. Now, after uh, leaving college, I had lived in Charlottesville, about 30 miles away, where Poe attended the University of Virginia for several months. His dorm room in the quad area gives us a sense of what daily life was for students in the university's first years. From what I understand, the rooms in that area are reserved today for graduate students. Poe's original room was rather sparse, and all I remember was that it had a rather uncomfortable-looking bed, some bundled wood, and a raven on the mantel, and the room number was, appropriately enough, number 13. 
But the thing that impressed me at the time the most was the gigantic uh, poster of Madonna, who was extremely popular then in the students' room beside number 13. Okay, well, maybe I knew a tiny little bit about Poe, but not all that much. And I found out later that much of what I did know was wrong. But back to the Poe Museum for my job interview. You entered the Poe Museum through a rather small building called the Old Stone House, built around 1737. I later learned that this had been the residence of the Edgy family who had helped supply General Lafayette's troops during the Revolutionary War. Poe would have passed the house on his walks down Main Street. The house is known as the oldest home in Richmond, and in a city with many old homes, the old stone house is famous as the only home still standing built prior to the Revolutionary War. The Association for the Preservation of Virginia Antiquities saved the building from being destroyed in 1913 and loaned it to the Poe Foundation. The house then opened as the Poe Museum in 1922. While Poe never specifically lived in the house, it does have a connection to Poe, something I will discuss when we cover Poe's youth. In any case, I walked into the museum, not really knowing what to expect. Chris Sempner, the brilliant director of the museum, greeted me and proudly showed me around. Uh, by the way, before I go any further, the museum, like many places, has been closed to the public because of the COVID crisis. But now the museum is open with masks or face coverings required, timed entry, and a limit of six people at a time. And if you're not in a position to visit, or even if you are, let me encourage you to support the museum by shopping at their gift store online. The gift store has some awesome Poe-related items. Their website is poemuseum.org. That's poemuseum, all one word, dot org. The exhibit I remember most from that day, I was rather nervous, was an exhibit of uh, lines from Shakespeare's plays that Poe had copied. For some odd reason, I distinctly remember part of the document that was from Hamlet. Now, Poe was not trying to pass the words off as his, but as a tribute to Shakespeare, a great writer who had a tremendous influence on Poe's work. Chris just basically talked, and I told him some things about my background. The interview seemed to be going fairly well, but I think I had learned enough to know an interview could go either way. Imagine my surprise at being hired on the spot, the first and last time that has ever happened to me anywhere. I would like to think that it was because of my background in education, but in reality, I think they just needed somebody right away. During the next few months, I was constantly amazed to learn how many creative or artistic people had visited the museum, including the writers Gertrude Stein and H.P. Lovecraft, as well as Vincent Price, the star of many movies based on Poe's stories. During Mr. Price's visit in 1975, he had his photo taken with the museum's famed stuffed raven. In 2014, his daughter Victoria Price visited the museum and said that Poe had been such a part of her life that she thought of him as her uncle. 
The museum is near the Richmond Coliseum, so often the musicians who were appearing at the Coliseum would visit the Poe Museum. Willie Nelson with his entourage were visitors, and Billy Corgan and the Smashing Pumpkins were also among those who stopped by. One day, a rather quiet and reserved lady wandered in off the street alone. It was Bette Midler, who apparently had a real interest in Poe. I later talked with a friend who was fortunate enough to see her show that night at the Richmond Coliseum, and he said that Bette Midler mentioned the Poe Museum during her concert. Uh, To say that I enjoyed becoming immersed in learning about Edgar Allan Poe would be an understatement and getting paid for that passion was a bonus. Then my partner told me that he had gotten a job in Washington, D.C. To move or not to move was a difficult decision, but we ended up leaving. We left Richmond, and I assumed my interest in Poe was going to be a thing of the past. I got a job as a tour guide at Woodlawn, a colonial house across the Potomac River from Mount Vernon, and the Pope Leahy House, a home designed by Frank Lloyd Wright. Then we moved to West Virginia, where I interpreted for several deaf students at West Virginia University and was a tour guide at Frank Lloyd Wright's Falling Water in Pennsylvania. Notice a pattern here? And the ironic part was that my interest in the life and works of Edgar Allan Poe was to actually intensify in a personal and professional way that I could have never imagined, all because I was now in West Virginia. Welcome back. For the rest of this podcast, I would like to talk about traveling through the state of West Virginia as Poe and how it has informed this podcast. And I'm going to start this part of the podcast with a story that I don't think I've ever told anyone before. You see, as a kid, I was painfully shy. In the first grade, the teacher would say, raise your hand if you need to go to the bathroom. Well, that was unthinkable to me. I was way too scared and just couldn't stand the idea of calling attention to myself. Several times I would leave for the day and there would be a little pool of urine beneath my desk. I was just too shy to hold up my hand. I even decided to become an interpreter for the deaf because I erroneously thought that would keep me from talking to people. Well, I could not have been more wrong. As an interpreter, you are constantly faced with medical, educational, legal, and even performance arts situations where people are constantly paying attention to your communication. As an interpreter, I ended up signing for thousands of hours in schools, hospitals, for plays, religious settings, and almost any area requiring communication. So over the years, I started forcing myself to communicate in front of a group. Being a tour guide was a very structured way of doing that, and you had plenty of chances to get it right. Getting back to West Virginia, my husband and I had moved to Morgantown, site of West Virginia University, and like most college towns, it has its progressive elements. Morgantown is a bustling city, but in 10 minutes, you can be in the middle of beautiful forests on the side of a mountain, and you can look down into a valley with a winding river that just takes your breath away. It is a beautiful area, but I thought there just wouldn't be the opportunities I was looking for. 
I was an interpreter for the deaf at West Virginia University, but it was hard to depend on a specific number of hours. I worked at the Morgantown Tour Center, but that was, part, that was just part-time work. And I was a guide at Frank Lloyd Wright's Falling Water. I really enjoyed that. But it was in Pennsylvania, about a two-hour drive, and was also part-time. One day I was surfing the web and ran across a page about a program of the West Virginia Humanities Council called History Alive. The program featured West Virginia citizens providing historical figures at such venues as schools, libraries, community centers, and festivals. At first, I was all excited at the idea of possibly portraying Edgar Allan Poe, but that hope was dashed when I realized there seemed to be an emphasis on West Virginia history, and I really didn't know any connection that Poe had with West Virginia. Edgar Allan Poe breathed his last in 1849, and West Virginia didn't even become a state until 1863, a difference of 14 years. It was one of those times when you get all excited about something, and then you're faced with reality and your hopes are dashed. Then I began frequenting the West Virginia Library at the university. I did a lot of research and found some historical information that I could use. For example, when I was uh, traveling through the northern part of the state as Poe, I could talk about Poe's writings about Harper's Ferry, a historic town in the northern part of West Virginia. Another connection was Dr. Thomas Dunn English. Poe and Dr. English were today what we might call frenemies. And while they were friends at first, Dr. English later made some libelous statements about Poe in print. Edgar Allan Poe sued Dr. English, won the case, and was able to buy some new furniture. Dr. English was the first mayor of Logan, West Virginia, a small coal town about 60 miles from Charleston in the middle of the state. It is believed that when Poe wrote the horror story, The Cask of Amontillado, he was writing about Dr. English in the character of Fortunato, who was buried alive in the tale. Now, how many mayors can say that they were sued by Edgar Allan Poe or buried alive in a Poe story? While in the southern part of the state, I could emphasize how the Allen family vacationed there with the rest of the then-southern aristocracy at White Sulphur Springs in Greenbrier County. And even though Poe could be quite unbelievably critical of other writers in his reviews, he spoke quite highly of Philip Pendleton Cook from the southern part of what became West Virginia. He also spoke highly of Dr. Joseph Snodgrass, a writer from Berkeley County in the same area, when Poe was found in a Baltimore tavern just before his earthly death, he called out for Dr. Snodgrass. Dr. Snodgrass was one of the few people who attended Poe's funeral. So it started to look that Poe just might be a good subject for History Alive after all. All applicants for the program had to write a detailed paper-slash-application regarding his or her chosen subject. And if there's one thing that college teaches you, it's how to write papers. 
So after submitting the application and an audition, I was chosen to be Edgar Allan Poe. The Humanities Council even paid for a costume. And for the next few years, I traveled around West Virginia and later Pennsylvania as Edgar Allan Poe. Each presenter's program was structured to have three sections. In the case of Poe, first I would speak as the writer regarding the historical, social, and political issues that influenced his life. Then I would answer questions from the audience, still as Edgar Allan Poe. And for the final part, I would break character and speak as myself to answer questions. As a researcher, I could answer questions that the historical character would not know yet, such as how his life influenced other writers, movies, etc. This podcast will be structured as basically an extended version of that History Alive character. Instead of covering Poe and his world in a half an hour, but will hopefully be hundreds of hours devoted to covering Poe and his influence on our world. I mention all this because this podcast is a real deep dive into the life and works of Poe with a great deal of information. And I think of a variation of the format I used for History Alive would be the simplest, most logical, and entertaining way of getting the narrative and the many connected stories to the writer across. While a presentation is usually rather structured for a classroom, this podcast will hopefully be a great deal more free-flowing. You can almost say this podcast has two hosts, myself and the ghost, or if you will, the spirit of Edgar Allan Poe. The character of the ghost of Poe is obviously fictional, but what he says is based on thousands of hours of research into historical events. Now to answer the very basic question, how will the listener know when I am speaking as me and when I am speaking as Poe? Well, after a great deal of thought, I decided to record the audio on two tracks with separate pitch filters. I would speak as myself as appropriate regarding narration, questions, and commentary on one track and I would speak as Poe's ghost, more about that in the next episode, about his life, works, and even events after his death on the other track, using his words and what others have said about him. All this probably sounds a lot more complicated than it really is. Hopefully, it will all come across seamlessly. But how do we know what Poe sounded like? Well, in an article from the excellent the Edgar Allan Poe Society of Baltimore website, the author states that sometimes Poe's voice was very restrained and other times very theatrical, that he did not have a single style of presentation. Mary Gove Nichols wrote in 1863 about Poe that he always spoke low, even in a violent discussion. On the other hand, Mary Starr, in 1888, wrote, His voice was pleasant and musical, but not deep. So that doesn't help much. Unfortunately, Poe breathed his last in 1849, long before sound recording was invented. One lady who heard Poe spoke wrote that he sounded like the great actor Edwin Booth, the brother of John Wilkes Booth, who shot Abraham Lincoln. 
and we do have an 1890 recording of the great actor Edwin Booth from one of Shakespeare's tragedies, Othello. By today's standards, the sound quality is very poor, so I will read it first so you can hopefully understand the words better. It starts, Most potent, grave, and reverent seniors, my very noble and approved good masters, that I have taken away this old man's daughter. It is most true, true, I have married her. Uh, before listening to these four lines, and I'm not going to subject you to anything longer than that, pay special attention to the end for what are probably the clearest words in this passage. I have married her. Here is Edwin Booth from 130 years ago. That scratchy sound was state-of-the-art for 1890. Okay, that might help a little bit. I guess that is about as close to hearing Poe's voice as we will get, taking into consideration that Booth was from Maryland. Now, what about Poe's accent? I was taught in a theater class that, if appropriate, you should let your accent develop into what the character's accent might have sounded like. And the closer your accent is to the character naturally, the better. I have lived in Richmond several years, same as Poe, and I grew up in Stanton, a place Poe visited every year when the Allen family spent summers at White Sulphur Springs. I had also lived in West Virginia for several years. I had spent some time in New York and Baltimore and, like Poe, had lived in Pennsylvania. People in Pennsylvania who I worked with would comment on my southern accent that I talked funny. Poe most likely spoke with a strong southern accent. He did not have the influences of hearing speech on television, radio, and the internet. Most of the speech patterns he picked up were most likely those of the Richmonders around him. For example, in the Richmond of Poe's time, and still in many areas of Virginia, the phrase haunted house is pronounced hanted house. So in The Raven, Poe would have most likely said, on this desert land enchanted, on this home by horror hanted. So with Poe, enchanted and hanted would rhyme. I use this approach to what did Poe sound like in developing the historical character for the History Alive program and throughout this podcast. By the way, as I said, I tried to keep the ghost of Poe as historically accurate as possible, especially when he talks about his life. But this is not a scholarly paper, and the ghost will occasionally make such statements as, I currently haunt the halls of the Library of Congress. It seems logical that a ghost of Poe would choose to haunt or haunt a library because he loved to read so much. And the Library of Congress is the largest library in the world. And I hope that the kind of subject of who we are speaking, George or Edgar, will become obvious as we go along. 
I encourage you to use the links to answer questions from the character of Mr. Poe at celebratepoe at gmail.com. That's celebratepoe at gmail.com. There's no need for you to include your name unless you want a shout out. I do have a few questions from my days at History Alive as Poe, but I want to deal with the subjects that you are interested in. My aim is to launch this podcast with several episodes. So it might be several episodes on down the road before it seems like I am answering your question. And again, you can send any questions for Mr. Poe or even me to Celebrate Poe, that's all one word, celebratepoe at gmail.com. So much for the nuts and bolts of this podcast. I want to give future episodes a supernatural vibe. So join me for the next podcast where I first encounter the ghost, or if you will, spirit of Poe. Resources for this podcast include Robert Blumfield's excellent Accents, a manual for actors. Well, thank you very much for making it this far as we take a deep dive into learning about America's Shakespeare and how he has changed our world. Remember to subscribe to this podcast. There's so much to come in Celebrate Poe, and you don't want to miss it.